0: Let's pray together. <clears throat> August, the last Sunday in August, 2017 is two-thirds of the way finished already. Our observation, Lord, is that time is flying by. And before we know it, God, we'll be at the end of it all, the end of our lives or the end of the waiting for you to come. It seems that that's coming sooner then i realize. And father, you have made it very clear in your word that we must be ready. The bible is simple and plain so often. And on that regard, it cannot be more plain. One day soon you're coming back and we must be ready. But until that time, father, there will be difficulty. And we are at the sermon at the Mount of Olives now in Mark 13, where Jesus is explaining that to us, Father. And so we pray that today you would give us faith to receive it well and to understand, and we ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to Mark chapter 13, back where we've been, back where we've been for quite some time. We're going to pick up where we left off. I told you a couple weeks ago that we are in the Mount of Olives discourse. Jesus' sermon on the Mount of Olives, and it is a tough one. It is uh, Jesus' longest sermon in the Gospel of Mark and his second longest sermon that we have in the Word of God, and it is, it is loaded. It is very much so loaded. Many have called it some, somewhat of a blueprint uh, for Jesus' timeline for the end times, even perhaps much more... Uh, than the book of Revelation. But that is what we're trying to figure out. I've told you all many times how much I love being a dad, and I truly do. It wears me out, makes me mad, brings out the worst in me, and um, at the same time fills my heart with more more joy than I could have ever imagined. And I mean that. And so with uh, the fall season approaching, we've now moved into soccer season, and as always happens, there aren't enough coaches, and so they need one. And so I sign up to coach, and I really don't know much about soccer. And so we had a first practice this week, and I played a little bit of sports. And so, you know, the first thing you do is you just tell the kids to line up. It's time to start running. So I tell them to start running, and some kids are walking, and some kids are refusing to run. And then we get, get, get back to the huddle, and I had a couple kids say, Coach, I'm not much of a runner. And it struck me because if you've played sports, you know. I mean, running comes with it. So when we left and we were on our way home, we got home. I I reminded my kids, if you're not much of a runner, maybe sports aren't for you. Or if you're not much of a runner, you're not going to be in a good enough shape to be able to play when the time comes. That's just that's just the way it goes. If there's a kid out there running, and you're not running then it's going to be a challenge. We had to talk through these things. And it got me thinking about, you know, is that, is that really true? Do I, do I believe that? And yet I was reminded of many, many, many times in my life where I've been trying to run or I remember our team running or something like that, and, and it was really, really hard. I don't know if you ever played sports before, but one of the things that's really common at the beginning of a season it's for you to show up, everybody out of shape, and coach, it takes pride in running you until you're sick. This is common. In football, this happens all the time because it's, it's in the middle of summer when they start. It's June or July, and coach just runs everybody, and there'll be people throwing up. There'll be people passing out, all of that, and it comes with the territory. And so one who doesn't get it or one who's never done it would, may stand back and say, why would anybody do that? Y'all, y'all are crazy. Running till you puke? Running until you can't go any further? Running till you fall over? Why, why would you do that? But if you've ever known what it is to compete, you know why. Because there's coming a day down the road when you're going to match up with another team that's been training as well, and typically whoever's in the best shape is going to be the winner. So here's what you understand about training and difficulty and hurting and even, if it takes that, getting sick. It's hard, but we're still going to do it. We may not like it, but we're still going to go through it. It's worth it because we know what we're going to get from it. We know what we're going to get through it. We know what we're going to get at the end of it. Now, I certainly don't want to minimize the coming tribulation or the sufferings and persecution that the people of God are to endure. I don't want to minimize that. But I do want to get you thinking about going forward in hardship for the sake of receiving the reward that is on the other side. And this is what Jesus brings up now in the Mount of Olives discourse. Read with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's page 934 in the Black Pew Bible there. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. I've told you now for several weeks that this is a hard sermon to hear. Not only is it a hard one to hear for what we do understand, but it's also hard to hear because there's so much of it that is very difficult to understand. i I've been glad to tell you so often that uh, the excuse for Bible readers is that they don't understand it, and I love to tell you that so much of it is easy to understand, yet there are passages that are difficult, and now in this Mount of Olives discourse, we have found some. I want to remind you of where it all comes from. Remember, if you look back up to chapter uh, 13, the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is now departing. He is on his way to the cross, and he uh, comes out of the temple, and he's leaving the temple, And one of the disciples says to him, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. This disciple is in awe of the beauty of the temple. But Jesus passed the temple, over the temple, finished with the temple, if you will. And so Jesus turns and says to him in verse 2, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is now predicting and foretelling the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, which we know happened in AD 70, just a few years past this. So that's what's happening there. Well, when Jesus says that, in the disciples' mind, they hear, okay, a bad thing is going to happen, but they relate that, connect that with the fulfilling or bringing in of the kingdom. And I told you that last week. So their response in verse 3 is Peter, James, John, and Andrew, those four come. And in verse four, they say to him, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So they ask the big question that the whole world continues to ask, when? When is the end gonna be? When is this going to happen? And What's it gonna be like? What will be the signs? How will we know? We're looking for it, Right. And if you remember, that's the question they kept looking for. And so last week, I showed you at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, when Jesus was now post-resurrection, he had defeated sin and death, he was alive. Jesus was now... Uh, there and about to send into heaven They were totally awestruck that their god their lord and savior had died a death for their deaths died for their sins But had risen again. He was alive now And so they were seeing and experiencing that and even at that moment where jesus is about to ascend up into heaven where he remains Even now they asked again. Tell us now is, is now when you're about to bring in the kingdom is this the moment? See, that's what they were so thinking of and that's what their questions are But Jesus' answer, as I told you, is not the answer they were looking for, and really not the answer that we are so often looking for, but it's the answer that you and I need. His answer in verse 5 is do not be led astray. See that no one lead you astray. And then he says that there will be distractions, there will be rumors, there will be wars, there will be nations against nation, there will be kingdoms against kingdom, there will be earthquakes, there will be famines, and all this stuff is just the beginning. It's not it. These are not the signs. He says in verse 9, but be on guard. And he talks about persecution and councils and synagogues and before governors and kings to be a witness to the truth of God. Jesus. Verse 10 says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Jesus's focus is not so much on the hardship that his people will have to go through as much as it is that the plan and the saving plan, the redemptive history plan of what Jesus is doing being fulfilled or what God is doing being fulfilled, that all of this will come to pass. And we're going to see in our passage today that his people will be faithful through it all. Then he talks about how bad it will be in families because the commitment to God will even divide families. And then in verse 13, he says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Hard passage for us to hear. Hated for good reason. Hated because you love Jesus. Hated for the cause of Jesus. Hated, if you will, for the glory of God. And after that, he just says very plainly, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So when we find ourselves suffering and persecuted, confused, hurting, looking, searching, and all of that that the Christian life brings, and much worse down the road, Jesus' answer for us is, hold on tight. Jesus' answer for us is, stick with it. Jesus' answer for us is, it's hard, but you must go through it, knowing it will be worth it. So that's the setting. And now at verse 14, he continues preaching, building upon that. I want to give you three points today. Number one, beware of danger. Beware of danger. Number two, be safe in Jesus. Be safe in Jesus. Number three, be ready, it's coming. Be ready, it's coming. Beware of danger, be safe in Jesus, be ready, it's coming. In verse 14, Jesus now says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, Let the reader understand. This passage right here is only a little bit of verse 14. And it's about as hard as it gets. You see, if you're a preacher that just preaches topical stuff, you're never going to get to this one, right? Nobody wants to try to explain this or, or get to it. It's so heavy. But we're preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and we're committed to trying to search it all out. And so here we are. Let me explain a little bit. Abomination is something that causes disgust. Or hatred. It is just something that is wrong. It's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. It's flat out wrong. It shouldn't be. That disgusts me. I hate seeing that. This is an abomination. This is what Jesus is talking about. What is it an abomination of? It's an abomination of desolation. A desolation is a state of complete emptiness or destruction. This, a state of complete emptiness or destruction. You remember a few weeks ago I showed you that Jesus had said that the temple, he now called their house, which used to be his house, he says the temple is now desolate. That, that building literally has nothing to do with the glory of God anymore. We're done with that. It's desolate, your house. You know, so often we hear about churches that are dying and closing, right? You've heard of this. And the question comes up, what do we what do we do with those buildings? And that's kind of a sad thought, isn't it? Because for so many people, the church building is to them a huge landmark, a, a huge spiritual marker in their lives, right? For my children, they have been here Every single bit of their lives. They have to this point been born and raised in Fairdale, Kentucky. And from the time that they came out of Valetia, they have been involved with this church. Think about how much this place means to them. I love it when we go on vacation or we get to go somewhere else or I take them up to Southeast Christian who's got a, a gym that's about as big as Fairdale High School's property. I mean, this gigantic church. And I'll say, well, you think about that church, guys. Which is better, Southeast or First Baptist Fairdale? And they say, our church. Right, that, that's how they are. No matter what church we go to. We've been to churches that we went to a church on vacation that in their little like commons area where people just hang out, they had like 80-inch TVs and Xboxes in the foyer, like, like that's our foyer out there. They had that set up for the kids in the church foyer. What's better, guys? They said this church. They, 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 they love their church for all types of reasons, Right? Not at all because we've got the better video games or anything like that, but but all the things that this is what they've ever known, this is all they've ever known, that you people love them, you you, you support them, you hug them, you care for them, they see you. This is where their daddy works and serves and, and all of those things. But you see what I'm saying? You, you, you get an affection for your church. We know there's nothing to this building. The church is a living thing. It is the people of God. There's really nothing special about the building in the eyes of the glory of God, but it is that the building becomes special to us. And yet, when we're not making disciples, or when feuding happens, or when people are sinful, the church can start to kill itself from the inside out. It's very common, sadly. And so churches shrink, and if churches shrink, they tend to not be able to pay the bills. And Next thing you know, a church is empty. And sometimes churches get sold and turned into a school or sold or turned into a little market. Or sometimes churches get sold and then just bulldozed, right? Because we'll build something else on that nice piece of property. But imagine that idea. A place where they used to gather to worship. A place that was so meaningful to some people now isn't. This is the idea behind being desolate, a state of complete emptiness or destruction. Jesus warns here that an abomination of desolation, a a state of emptiness, something so empty and nothing is coming and it will disgust you and it will hate you. This is what he's talking about. And he says it will be standing somewhere. He says it will be standing somewhere where it ought not to be. And then we have this phrase, let the reader understand. And this gives us all types of trouble. Some people say that Mark wrote this, and some people say that Jesus said this. I don't think Jesus said it personally, because Jesus is talking about something they will see, and he's not saying something that you will be reading. Jesus is preaching a sermon right there privately to his disciples. He's not telling them something that they're going to be reading. So I don't think it's Jesus. I think Mark is writing this. I think Mark is writing this because, listen to me, because Mark is bringing up the idea of the abomination of desolation, which is not first being mentioned here. Y'all, the abomination of desolation has already been discussed in Scripture, and it's from the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, the prophet in chapter 9 and in chapter 11 and in chapter 12 speaks prophesying about an abomination of desolation that is coming there is coming this disgusting empty god opposing event or thing that is coming now history tells us remember you you know that when the old testament ended listen to me there was a 400 year gap of nothing i think that you know that so when the old testament ended Until the gospel of Matthew started or really when John the Baptist came coming before Jesus. Now you're following me, right? Christmas and the birth of Jesus and Mary and and, and John the Baptist. When that happened, go backward 400 years and there was nothing that we know about according to the word of God in those 400 years. It's a further reminder of desolation. It's a further reminder of things aren't good. Now, we do have the whole, the whole history in the Bible from Adam and Eve to the flood with Noah to the promises of Abraham to the people of Israel through the Exodus and then through all the prophets. We do have all of that in the Bible and we've got thousands of years of the history of God's working. But when that ends with the prophets, you've got 400 years basically of nothing, nothing going on. But in 168 BC, for those of y'all that care anything about history, something happened. The Syrians from Syria attacked Jerusalem in the temple led by Epiphanes or Antiochus IV. And, and they came right into the temple, listen to me, in Jerusalem. And they erected a huge statue to their false god named Zeus. And they offered a burnt offering in the temple of God, to Zeus there and they took a cow and sacrificed it to their false god Zeus right there in the temple many people say that this coming hundreds of years after the prophecy of Daniel is what Daniel was talking about disgusting and empty another country comes into God's place In front of God's people, in God's temple, and worships with a burnt offering at the sacrifice of a cow, a false god that they built. Sounds disgusting, right? In the sight of God. Many people say that this is the abomination of desolation that Daniel is referring to. Well, here, back in our passage, Jesus brings it up. And I think the reason why Mark says, let the reader understand, is so that they're not caught off guard by what is the abomination of desolation, so that they are reminded of that. Here's what I think is really true. I think in 2017, when we read the abomination of desolation, our head swirls and we're like, what in the world is he talking about? But I think for the reader here, I think the abomination of desolation would have been much more familiar. It's a little bit odd and foreign and awkward for us to try to, to try to deal with it. But I think for these people that Mark is writing to, I think they're like, okay, we remember that. We know the book of Daniel. We know the prophet Daniel, the abomination of desolation. Jesus warns about it. But look what he says. He says, when you see it standing where it ought not to be, here's what should happen. And this is why my first point is beware of danger. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Jesus is saying, When you see this happen, this is bad, horrible, an abomination, scary, disgusting. It is terrible. You ought to be afraid. Beware of danger. Get out of there when it happens. Now, as you know, a lot of people think. That what Jesus is talking about here is something that's going to happen well down the road. Like the end times, like when Jesus returns, like when Jesus comes back when he ends the world. And this is why this is hard to figure out. Because if you keep going a little bit, just ju- we're not going to talk about it too much today, but if you look down to verse 24, it says, but in those days after that tribulation, then it's gonna start talking about something else. Verse 26, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. You see that? So there are a lot of things in this passage that make us think, okay, maybe he is talking down the road. Maybe he is talking something future for us. But I want to remind you that what also came and happened was the horrible, terrible, that I told you about last week, attack of the Romans led by Titus the general on Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70 and the fulfilling of them destroying the entire temple. So he very well could have been talking about that. Here's why I think so. Because when Jesus returns... There's not going to be an opportunity for you to flee to the mountains or get out of the house or do all of that. When our Lord returns, then it's going to be a, a, a situation right then where it is salvation has come and judgment has come. So what I think is happening here, this is very rare in scripture, is that Jesus is talking to them about something that they're about to experience And at the same time, he is pointing us to what is going to happen in the end. Look with me. Read a little bit more. Verse 17. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Well, think about that. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be winter somehow, somewhere. He's talking about something very specific to them that they're going to experience. But look what he says next. For in those days, there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. He's talking about the worst experience of tribulation that there ever will be. And so it sounds like he's talking about possibly something that they're about to experience, but at the same time alluding to, referring to something in the future. little side note real quick, I don't want to spend much time on it. According to Mark chapter 13, verse 19, Jesus believes that God is the creator of the world. There still continue to be so many people who want to say that God is not the creator, that we came about from other ways, that creation is not a real thing. We have so many people that oppose this. Notice that Jesus here in verse 19 says, from the beginning of the creation that God created. Jesus is a creationist. He believes in creation. Verse 20, and if the Lord had not, oh, sorry, let me stop at verse 19. So, Jesus is talking about a dangerous situation that is coming. Now, what makes this a little bit more heavy and complicated is that in verse 14, he says it will be standing where it ought not to stand. Sounds like a person, doesn't it? Sounds like a person more than it sounds like an experience. It's complicated. Whether he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which was ultimately the worst thing that Jerusalem would experience, so it could have been the worst of all, or whether he is pointing us completely toward the end times and what we are going to experience, I'm not ultimately sure. It sounds like he could be talking about both, but here's what we do know. It is absolutely a calling that dangerous times are coming. Dangerous times were coming for the Jews and the believers there in Jerusalem and dangerous times are coming for us. It is not going to get any better before we are in heaven. Beware of danger. This is the calling of our Lord. Beware of danger. I remember a few years ago, I met a boy here who told me he played baseball for Fairdale High School. He was wearing a big, nice class ring. Y'all know how nice class rings look and on it, he had, he had Fairdale High School baseball and he had his number and all that. And I said to him, I said, man, I've, I've been around the baseball team quite a bit. We fed them, I've prayed with them, I've talked to them. I go to watch lots of games, I've been there. I've never even seen you out there, not even one time. I didn't even know that you were on the team. He said, well, I quit. I said, well, when did you quit? He said, well, I, I quit early on. I said, yeah, because I don't think I've ever seen you out there. I said, why'd you get it on, on your ring then? Because, you know, your ring you get a little bit later. He said, well, I was, I was a Fairfield baseball player. And I said, well, I don't know if you were. Why'd you quit? He said, man, it's hard, man. They had us running and coaches yelling at us, and we had to make certain grades, and it was hard to stay on the team. It's not exactly the part of the team. It's not exactly a Fairfield baseball player. As I opened up with, sometimes you go through the hardship to make sure that you're a part of it. We, we see in the Bible, folks, beware of danger. And we understand that Jesus has told us about it. Do you remember Jesus' final words? Look at verse 23. Final words of today's section. I have told you all things beforehand. Wow. Beware of danger. And Jesus says, I told you. I told you it was coming. I told you to be ready. I told you before it happened. Church, we need to realize that it is very common in Scripture that we need to be aware Danger is coming. Well, as I move on to the second point, be safe in Jesus. I want to follow up with what this abomination of desolation may be if it's talking about something future. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. Now I know it's going to be hard for y'all to find, but I want you to try to find it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that is before 1st and 2 Timothy. That is after Colossians and 1 Thessalonians. Paul here, writing to the church, and if you know anything about Thessalonians, Paul is often talking to them about end times. He writes more to the Thessalonians about the end times and the second coming of Christ than he really does to anybody else. Look what he says here. Here, it is not so much the abomination of desolation, but it is this phrase that's somewhat concerning called the man of Lawlessness. My first point is beware of danger. My second point is be safe in Jesus. At 2 Thessalonians chapter two, read with me. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Remember he said, don't be led astray. That's what he's talking about. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. See, some of them were afraid that they may have missed it. Some of them were afraid they may have not been saved. They thought they were saved and they weren't. They, they thought Jesus had already come. They thought, they thought that it had already happened. He says, don't be, verse three. Let no one deceive you in any way. Same message Jesus tells. For that day will not come, Unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, there's a very, very real chance that this abomination of desolation that Jesus is talking about is something coming in the future, and now the apostle Paul is writing to the Thessalonians about this thing that's coming in the future, and now here, Paul is calling it a man, not just an abomination of desolation, but the person standing is going to be the man of lawlessness, and it's coming, and he's saying them, this must happen first. Look what happens verse 4 who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God an absolute abomination an absolute desolation something that is absolutely disgusting that this man of lawlessness would come and he would elevate himself above everything else he would said that he is he would say that he is God and he would even take a seat in the temple supposing and claiming to be God it ought to make you sick when anybody elevates themselves above God but here Paul is warning them about this man of lawlessness verse 5 do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed when the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Let me stop there for just a second. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But notice, as fearful, I'm saying beware of danger, as fearful as the abomination of desolation is, as fearful as the man of lawlessness is, notice that it is our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming and his breath that will absolutely crush them and do away with them. For as strong and dominant and terrifying as these things are, whatever they are, these people are, whatever they are, these antichrists are, whatever they are, for as terrifying as they are, they are nothing compared to the power of Jesus. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The abomination of desolation very well may be the man of lawlessness that Paul writes about in Second Thessalonians. But here's what you need to know. In the face of danger and the warning to beware of danger, there is only one safe place Jesus. There is no safety outside of Jesus, there is no comfort outside of Jesus. And even as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring this thing to nothing. And then he says that that man of lawlessness will be able to deceive and kill those who are perishing. Why? Look at the end of verse 9. I'm sorry, the end of verse 10. Because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. The truth of salvation is that God loves and sent Jesus to die for the forgiveness of sins. And whoever believes in him will be saved. If Turn back to Mark 13 now. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised the crucified Jesus from the dead, you will be saved saved. That is the truth of the word of God. That is the truth of the message of God. That is the truth of the gospel of God. And whoever believes that will be safe in Christ. But whoever doesn't will be distracted by the abomination of desolation, will be killed by the man of lawlessness, will be in serious danger and on their way to perishing. Number one, beware of danger. Number two, be safe in Jesus. Now back at Mark chapter 13, look at verse 20. So as he gives this great warning and he warns about uh, fleeing to the mountains and not going back inside the house, I mean, it sounds very scary and serious and intense. It's, it's hard for us to even imagine those things. He's saying that it's gonna be worse for pregnant women and for nursing mothers. They won't be able to escape. It's, it's this horrible scene, beware of danger. But then he brings up, the loving mercy of God. In verse 20, he says, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. In other words, God's still the Savior. God's controlling of the days and controlling of the time and controlling of the, the present and the future. God's determining when it's going to stop and when is too much and when is too far. God's master plan in it all is the very thing that's controlling it all, and there will be a salvation there. Now He could have let it go, and this evil would have destroyed everything. We know that. We know that about our own hearts. We know that about our own world. We know that about the devil. We know that the wages of sin is death we know that and we know that all of us have sinned and all of us will die without the great love and work and mercy of God we know that and paul bring or sorry jesus brings it up here in verse 20 if the lord had not cut short the days no human being would be saved but for the sake of the elect whom he chose he shortened the days in other words god's saving his people Beware of danger, but number two, be safe in Jesus. In Jesus' sermon here, in multiple places, he uses the word elect. Oftentimes, an uncomfortable word, but I want to address it. Jesus is preaching here. His longest sermon in the Gospel of Mark uses the word elect several times. In verse 20 you have, but for the sake of the elect. Well, who are they? Those are the ones he chose, whom he chose. It says again at the end of verse 22, if possible, even the elect. Verse, jump down to verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds. God has an elect people. The Bible teaches us plainly That God has chosen who will be saved. Let me read to you a few scriptures. John chapter 6 verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. They come to him because the Father has given them to him. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The only heart and desire to ever come to God is one that God is doing in drawing you. John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus straight up says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Paul explains this to the Ephesians very clearly in chapter one of Ephesians. Let me read this to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us In him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. In other words, if anybody is saved, it's because God saved them to make that a little bit more simple, let me say this. The Bible teaches us that our hearts are cold, dead stones. That's that's what the Bible teaches. You may tend to think more highly of your own heart, but in all due fairness and kindness, you're in error about your heart. The Bible teaches us that our hearts are cold, dead stones. And we may be able to love some people around us, but we will never love God on our own. It is not until, listen to me, it is not until the love and mercy of God comes into your life and changes your heart and gives you a new heart, a living, breathing heart from God, that you begin to know and love and believe in Him. That is how somebody becomes a believer. God changes their heart. To make this very clear, Stay right there in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul is explaining that very thing. Chapter 2, verse 4 of Ephesians, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, notice that all of this great talk here on salvation in Ephesians 2 is all about God. There's nothing nothing that we're doing in this very familiar, famous, most popular passage in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. As we were dead, we found life because of what he did. Our life came from our being dead because God gave it to us. By grace, you have been saved. Verse six, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now look at these verses, eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Notice this, and this is not your own doing. This is what is at the very heart of election. You're saved because God did it. That's simply what it means to be elected. You're saved because God did it. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Verse nine, this is not a result of works so that no one may boast. There is no boasting in the Christian life. We did not bring ourselves to God, he brought us to God. Or rather, Christ brought us to God. You turn back to Mark chapter 13, and it makes a little bit more sense that in this Beware of danger sermon. Jesus brings up that his people will be safe. They'll be in danger, but they'll be safe. They'll be in danger, but they'll be his. They'll be in danger, but they'll be be kept. He he holds on to them. Perseverance is a real thing. Endurance is a real thing. Safe in Jesus. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10 says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and he is safe. Safe in the midst of all the danger, not safely removed from the danger. There is safety in Jesus. And I want to ask you here today if you're safe. When you hear of abomination of desolation or a man of lawlessness, or, you, or really when you, when you watch the news, when you feel fearful about our world and about your lives and you're wondering about all of that, I want to ask you here today, do you feel safe? Are you able to put your faith in a God that is bigger than our circumstances and feel safe? Do you realize that despite what happens to you, you you're gonna be in the love of God? I remember one time when KB said, his greatest weapon is death because that will put him where he needs to be. What a neat thought. If the worst they can do to us is kill us, then they would be taking us to our home. The Bible says heaven is our home. What a thought. Are you safe in Jesus? Have you forsaken all of your sins? Have you humbled yourself? Have you believed that God loves you so much that there is safety in him? Do you believe that your sins are against him, that he's offended by that, and you're gonna trust in him alone for salvation? Have you fled to mercy? Those who do, Those who trust in Christ are the elect. Those are God's people. I want to read to you some comments by J.C. Ryle. He says The subject of election is no doubt deep and mysterious. Unquestionably, it has been often sadly perverted and abused. But the misuse of truths must not prevent us from using them. Rightly used and fenced with proper cautions, election is a doctrine full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort. Before we leave the subject, let us see some cautions on this. So he gives two cautions, listen. He says, for one thing, we must never forget that God's election does not at all destroy man's responsibility and his accountableness for his own soul. The same Bible which speaks of election always addresses men as free agents and calls on them to repent, to believe, to seek, to pray, to strive, and to labor. God has told you that you must repent of your sins, that you must believe in Christ, and if you don't, you will face the wrath of God and judgment. He says, flee to Christ. He says for another thing, "'Let us never forget that the great thing we have to do "'is to repent and believe the gospel. "'You must turn to Christ. "'We have no right to take any comfort from God's election "'unless we can show plain evidence of repentance and faith. "'We are not to stand still, "'troubling ourselves with anxious speculations "'whether we are elect or not, "'when God commands us plainly to repent "'and believe the gospel, to trust in Christ.' Let us cease to do evil, learn to do well. Let us break off from our sin. Let us lay hold of Christ. Let us draw near to God in prayer. In so doing, we shall soon know and feel whether we are God's elect. The election of God is reminding us that God has a people. It reminds us that God is the Savior. It it reminds us that God is the main uh, character in this story. God made the world. We sinned against him. And now God is going to be sure that he will have a people that he's called out, that he's saving, that will love him and trust him forever. And through all of the hardship that is coming, he will keep them. Perhaps you remember in John chapter 16, verse 33, as Jesus is finishing up his time with the disciples and literally about to be betrayed by Judas, heading to the cross, Jesus said, In the midst of danger, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is absolutely unstoppable. And the messed up world that we live in, and the abomination of desolation, and the man of lawlessness, and it's getting worse, and all of that does seem to be just too much to even comprehend. But then the Bible gives us great comfort that when Jesus returns by the power of his breath, he will just do away with it and it will be over. Jesus is the Lord Almighty. He is the Savior of the world. He died for our sins, and in him there is safety. Beware of danger. Be safe in Jesus. And lastly, back at Mark 13, be ready. It's coming. In verse 22, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Jesus is saying that there will be a lot of people led astray. There will be many people, listen to me, who had seemed to be believers that no longer are. There will be many people who had done the church thing but no longer are. There will be many people who have a spirituality about them or have some sort of false comfort about them or or are certainly able to boast of all that they have done. But let me remind you, none of those things are salvation. Salvation has one look to it, and it is a broken, repentant heart. says, I'm not letting go of Jesus. Anything short of holding on tight to Jesus will not save you, will not keep you safe, and will not get you to heaven. No involvement with a church, no remembering that you got baptized, no dad that's a preacher, no scripture memory, none of that will save you. But arms clenched, heart clenched around the mercy of Jesus that died for you is the only place where your soul is safe. You need to hold on to Jesus. And in saying that, Jesus says, Be on guard. Look at verse 23. Be on guard. It's the exact same thing he said in verse 9, but be on your guard. But be on guard. In other words, be ready. Be ready. And I know that at times it sounds a little bit cheap to say, don't miss it. But the Bible gives us that very warning. We're not there yet. And I'm still going to preach it a little bit later, but look over to verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, the same word. Look what he says, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. Stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Be ready. It's coming. So what he's saying is coming, listen to me, in our passage today is the danger. Okay, I don't want us to skip over that and just get to, that Jesus is coming. The danger is coming. Be warned. He's told us, brace yourself. Dig deep. Hit your knees. Make sure you're safe. Make sure you're not holding on to anything else. Don't let it be one of these situations where you're not really a Christian. You just were one when everything was easy. Hold on to Jesus. But then also know Be ready! It's coming. He's coming back to get us. And when he comes back to get us, there will be safety in him. In two thousand and one, I went on my first mission trip to second mission two thousand two. Went on my second mission trip to Africa. Went to Ethiopia. At the time, it was the poorest country in the world. I was looking for bigger, better, harder. It was awesome. It was my favorite place I've ever been still as far as a mission trip because it was just so unlike anything I've ever seen. It was incredible. They say that the average Ethiopian lives off $100 a year. That's how poor it is there. And our flight was leaving on August the 29th, or August the 9th. We showed up at the airport. It was an expensive trip. Africa's far away. We showed up at the airport. It was me and one other guy, a buddy of mine. We were going to meet the missionaries there. And we showed up at the airport. We were ready to go. Our parents were with us. They knew it was a scary trip. It was a backpacking type of frontier trip. It was a really hard trip. And we showed up, and we went to the counter, and we were so excited. We handed them our tickets. And they said, fellas, your, your flight left August 8th. We said, no, it's August 9th, like today, August 9th. I said, no, it left August 8th. We paid $3,500 for that trip. We got to the airport counter and handed them our tickets that said August the 8th, but it was August the 9th. We missed it by a day. We were a day late for our trip to Africa. I looked at my buddy and I said, because he had the tickets the whole time, I said, did you never look at the tickets? I said, nah, man, I never never checked. I've been thinking it was August the 9th the whole time. Guys, Jesus is the only Savior. If you're not in love with Him, if you're not seeking Him for forgiveness, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss heaven, you're going to face the judgment. You're going to suffer with no looking up. The only answer is Jesus. And when Jesus warns us here, he's wanting us to know, be ready. May we be ready. Let's pray. Father, Father, thank you for sermons of Jesus. We know, Father, that he preaches better than anybody else has preached, but we're dependent upon you to understand all of this. And even when we don't understand some of the details, we understand the heart of the message. Flee the wrath to come, trust in Christ. Father, we ask here today that you would move in our hearts, that we would believe, that we would be sure that we are your children. Father, I pray that you would give us a strong and courageous spirit about us that says, I know it's going to get worse, but we're going to get through it. It will be worth it. Father, help us now to be strong in faith. Help us, God, to believe in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.